Whew, this is weird. You guys doing all right? I got to check on you. We good? We're good. For years of my life, I, uh, I struggled with a lot of doubts. A lot of doubts. I went through a time period where I very intentionally said, if, if I'm going to own my faith, I'm going to own it. And I asked every hard question I could find. And so things like, um, what is sin? And is, is there even such thing as sin? And why do people believe that God actually gave us this book? And um, what does it even mean that Jesus died for me? How does that even work? And how do we know that Jesus is God? And the questions went on and on. And in that, I struggled with big issues. Issues of how do you deal with problems of evil? Hey. There we go. Welcome to our new home. <laughs> in, that process, uh, in that process, I, uh, I heard time and time again people just bringing me back to the gospel. That we need to focus on the gospel. That Jesus died for you. That God so loved the world that he gave us his only son. And, and I was like, I, I know that Jesus died for me. I mean, I know that. I've, I, I, I know that. I grew up in church. I know all those answers. But all of those answers seemed really, really cheap to me. I mean, overly simplistic. They sounded like the right answers, the, the Christian answers. And years have passed. And, and during that time, I struggled greatly. And in that process, I've really come to some conclusions about my faith. You know how they take... Uh, metal and they send it through fire and it burns off the impurities but at the end you have something stronger you have something pure and I feel like that's what happened to my faith so a lot of things that people are really really been out of shape over in their faith dinosaurs I don't care about dinosaurs I know some of you do and I don't want to offend you but I don't know and I don't care the end of the world I know it's coming I know Jesus is coming back, but I don't know. So I, I've kind of, I hold some of those things really loosely, but the things that I do hold to are stronger than ever. I can cling to them. And today, I say all this to say, these last, last few months, I, I've talked to you guys. I know that there are people out there struggling with depression and debt, and their marriage is just held together by the sheer grace of God. And you guys have real problems and real questions and real serious and raw needs. And I'm going to come to you today and say, just believe that Jesus died for you. And it sounds cheap and it sounds simplistic. But I need you to hang on. I need you to just join me. Just Put those questions on hold and just trust me at least through this first sermon. But for the next four weeks, we're just going to talk about what does it mean that Jesus died for you? And my prayer is that in the process, you'll come to believe in it and love it as much as I do. Let's go First Corinthians, First Corinthians chapter 2. If you know anything about the Apostle Paul who wrote the book of 1 Corinthians, 
you know that he was a prolific guy. He was, he was a genius. He wrote most of the New Testament. He wrote on every topic you can imagine on sin and, and God and humanity and, and history, uh, on philosophy. He wrote every topic you can imagine. He kind of addressed it. He dealt with it in his time and his writings. And, and he, he went all over the Roman Empire and he planted churches. And he planted one in this, this large city, this Greek city called Corinth. And, and when you go through that, you realize that Corinth, if you read through both the book of First and Second Corinthians, and you read some of the history about Corinth, you realize that it was this giant city that was full of reprobates. I mean, people who were the, the most outrageous sins you can imagine, Jerry Springer-type sins. I mean, people like sleeping with their in-laws and like, I mean, just crazy things going on, witchcraft and idolatry. And I mean, just crazy things are going on there. And Paul, he planned church and then he left for a while. He had to go on in his missionary journeys and he didn't get back there for a while. And people, while he was gone, philosophers in Corinth, there's a, a large school of philosophy there. They started coming in and saying, you know, the stuff that the apostle Paul is preaching, it, it really sounds pretty foolish. Says that he loves a guy who died and came back from the dead and is with him all the time. Is he with you right now? I mean, it just sounds crazy. And th- that's what he's going to say in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 18. He's going to say, This is foolishness. Foolishness to this. And then, uh, meanwhile, these, these other guys, these itinerant preachers, would come through town and they would stop by. And these guys were awesome. They preached the most relevant, life-changing messages you've ever heard. Like, like ways for marriage and three ways to have the perfect kids. I mean, these guys were awesome. So, so the so-called super apostles, the apostle Paul calls them, they came in and they made him just look ineloquent. Like, your preaching is ridiculous, Paul. You're preaching about, you know, Jesus Christ crucified. It's foolish to the philosophers, and it just looks stupid compared to the other real preachers, Paul. And so how does Paul deal with this criticism? You'll see in in chapter 1, verse 23, he says, we preach Christ crucified. He admits it. And then he says in chapter 2, 2, he'll say this, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You're right. I only have one sermon. I, I only have one message. I, I only know one thing. Jesus Christ and him crucified. So people would come to Paul and the Corinthian church and say, Paul, I am struggling with depression. Like I have no way out of this. And he would say, Jesus died for you. And they say, Paul, my mind is blowing up. And he would say, Jesus died for you. Paul, I'm struggling with anger and lust. I hate myself. Jesus died for you. A million applications, one message. You know, I used to think that this was um, some kind of grand hyperbole. The Apostle Paul is uses that from time to time, some kind of grand overstatement. But the more I've got to know the Apostle Paul, reading him, studying him, the more I'm convinced that this is absolutely literal. 
That he really thinks that there is one message of Christianity. One, that's it. There's nothing else you need to know. You need to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. And if you know that, every other area will take care of itself. He seems to believe that it's the answer to every problem, the hope behind every desire, and the love behind every relationship. And I believe that too. So Ephesians 5 takes an issue like, how do you deal with your marriage? He says, you look at the cross. And when you see the cross, you see that Jesus is willing to submit to anything. Wives, why can't you submit to your husband? If Jesus could submit to that, why can't you submit to your husbands? Husbands, do you see what Jesus did in love for the church? He died the most horrific death you can imagine. And you're telling me you can't love your wife? That's how Paul preaches marriage. Lust, anger, depression, any selfishness, anything you can imagine. He takes it and he, and he says, look at the cross. Look at Jesus Christ and him crucified and there's your answer. And I know it takes a lifetime of of figuring out what does this mean and how does this work. Like when you, when you read the rest of the scriptures, when you read Philippians, when you read Galatians, you find that it's not just the answer to every problem, though it is, it's also the solution, it's, it's also the hope we have. In Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is, is on death row. He, he thinks he's going to die. He doesn't know or not. But in chapter 1, he says, you know, I don't know if I'm going to live or die, but for me to, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I don't know if I'm going to live or die, but here's what he does know. In chapter 3, he says, I want to know Christ. When I'm facing death, what do I want most out of my life? I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. I want to share in his cross, becoming like him in his death, literally formed by his death, so that I may somehow attain to the resurrection from the dead. That somehow the sacrificial death of Christ should form who we are. It should be our goal in life. It doesn't just solve problems. It's actually the goal that we're seeking. You read Galatians chapter 6. This is just crazy talk. The Apostle Paul's talking. He says, may I never boast except in the cross of Christ. I like the old versions. You guys, if you ever learned the Bible in the King James Version, if you grew up in church... It's literally, God forbid that I glory in anything except the cross of Christ. I love this image, glorying in the cross of Christ. Do you guys know what glory means? When's the last time you've said glory? Do you know what glory is? It's to delight in, to enjoy, to, this old Puritan word, to relish. You you do it naturally every day. Nobody has to train you to glory in something. you guys, you're going to glory in like some new coach of the Philadelphia Eagles, right? Glory in it. My wife naturally glories. She just got a haircut. She glories in it. And I glory in it. It's pretty nice. You get a new car. You get something new. You get a new church building. And we relish it. We delight in it. We enjoy it naturally. No one has to tell you. Like you you find a new restaurant and you just want to share it with your friends. That's what it means to glory in something. The Apostle Paul says, 
I delight, I relish, I glory in nothing but the horrific death of Jesus Christ. Church, let me tell you, in the next four weeks, we're going to talk about the cross of Christ. And we're going to go through a bunch of facts. You know me, I can't stand it. We're going to go through archaeological facts and linguistic stuff. We're going to go deep. We're going to, we're going to tear open some culture and history. And we're, we're going to go deep. We're going to look at all these facts. But there is a difference between knowing the facts about the cross of Christ and glorying in it. And church, I want us to glory in the cross of Christ. Um, the difference between knowing something, head knowledge, and knowing it personally is vast. You know, you can, you can walk through Wegmans and pull a, a carton of ice cream off the shelf and you can read the, the little ingredients on the side and you can know what's in that carton. But that, my friends, is totally different than you pull out of your freezer Ben and Jerry's chubby hubby. You pull out the spoon and shove your pie hole. Now that, then you truly know it. When we talk about the cross of Christ, I don't want you guys to just know the facts. I want to know it. I want to know Christ. I want us to say with the Apostle Paul, it's not just the solution to my problems, it's the goal of my life that I could somehow share in his sufferings. Whatever that means. So, some of you are visiting today, and I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, no, I'm glad you're here. But I, I know what you're thinking right now. You're like, okay, so this is a preacher who sits around and thinks big ideas. And th- this might be one of your great like, little preacher ideas where you sit in your coffee shop and you read books. But come on, Anderson. Do you know what my life's like? Do you know what I face every day? Do you know what my marriage is like? And and you're just going to tell me about the cross of Christ, these facts about the cross of Christ. I've believed it. You're going to say what I said years ago. I believe it. I I do. But I haven't experienced any of that. That just sounds crazy to me. Might be a little crazy. But I have to wonder... I have to wonder if the problem is the cross of Christ, that it doesn't have solutions or that it has solutions that we do not want to hear. Uh, let me put it. Is the problem that the cross of Jesus Christ does not have answers to our real needs and real problems? Or is it that the answers that the cross offers are not the ones we want? Like G.K. Chesterton, Catholic Uh, 19th century guy, brilliant author, has this quote. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult, left untried. What if, what if the cross of Christ does have answers to our real needs, our real struggles, our real questions, our real desires, our real longings, but we just don't want to hear it? 
Today, I just want to have a serious conversation before we talk about all the good stuff about the cross, about how it shows God's love, about how it shows God's kindness, how it shows God's forgiveness. I want to spend the next four weeks talking about that. I do. I want to unpack that. I want that to be the story, the search every week. But before we do that, I feel like we have to have a serious conversation about the cross of Christ because it's going to tell us the answers to questions of life that I'm afraid we don't want to hear them. I just want to lay out a few reasons why we don't want to believe the cross today. Point number one is this. We don't want to believe in the cross because the act of crucifixion is horrifying. I don't know if you guys have considered this recently. Maybe at least not since you last watched The Passion of the Christ. If you read the scriptures, it's clear. The cross is an offense. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Why? Because it's shameful what happens on a cross. You know, I think this would have been obvious to anyone who lived in the Roman era. You didn't have to emphasize this point to someone who had witnessed a crucifixion. Right now, I know that churches all over America, there are preachers going to say, Jesus died for you on the cross, and nobody's going to be offended. Nobody's going to feel ashamed. And maybe, maybe we should. Fiction. First-hand witnesses and historian Josephus, he called it the most pitiable of deaths. The first century orator Cicero called it the most cruel and atrocious of punishments. It was so offensive that even to say the word crucifixion in polite society was considered like a curse word. You wouldn't say it. Roman citizens were not subjected to this. It was, it was a punishment only fit, suitable for slaves and conquered peoples. Roman citizens would only be crucified if they committed a heinous crime like rape or treason. This practice was not Roman in origin. It was practiced some 500 years before the Romans ever showed up on the scene. In 519 BC, a guy named Darius, Darius I, a political uprising came up. And you know what he did? He had 3,000 political opponents crucified. It, it was an act of power to show this is what will happen to anyone who challenges my greatness. And he left him to hang up there for weeks and days and months until they rotted. So everyone who came through the cities saw this is what happens to those who challenge me. So the Romans didn't come up with it, but it's said by, by those who study this that the Romans perfected it. They engineered it to be the most shameful, degrading, humiliating death. To make a statement about the greatness of Rome. And anyone who would challenge them will face unthinkable death. The death was so horrible that they had to come up with a new word to describe it. That's where we get the word excruciating. It literally means from the cross. They would often scourge the criminals. Jesus was scourged. You know about this. They took a whip. It was a cat of nine tails. It's a handle with strips of leather coming out. And fastened to the end of it were bits of, bits of 
glass and shards of bone so that when they whipped it into him, it would rip open your back. We have this picture, 1959 in Italy. Some people were renovating their guest house and down in the basement on one of the rocks, they found this ancient etching on one of the stones. And uh, archaeologists studied it. They've dated it to about the second century A.D. It's ancient graffiti is what it is. What it is is a man who is scourged and all of his back is completely ripped open. And then he's crucified. In 1968, archaeologists discovered the remains of a crucified man in a tomb outside of Jerusalem. And the remains of this young man, he was between the ages of 24 and 28, he'd been crucified in the first century, so about the time of Christ. And of particular interest was, was this. A seven and a half inch nail through his heel bone. That they would take the nail, they would whip him till his back was completely ripped open, and then they would nail them, first their hands to the cross and lift them up, and then they would nail their heels through the into the crossbar. Now these these nails were driven through the flesh, but they weren't designed to kill, they were designed to torture. In fact, they engineered it so that the person would last as long as possible. They actually, the earlier picture, you see that they would put a little seat on it because people didn't actually die from the nails. You know what they died from? Asphyxiation. If you hung there long enough, you just couldn't breathe anymore. You become so weak that you couldn't breathe. So so in order to extend their life, the, the Romans came up with this sadistic way of extending it by putting a little seat underneath it. But the problem is, is all the people on the cross would try and push off so that they would die more quickly, so they would hammer leg or genital so that they could not do it. In the recordings we have in history, the pain was so excruciating that people would become incontinent. And so at the foot of the cross, there's literally human excrement and blood and sweat. Their bodies are so flayed that, that hunks of flesh would literally fall off. There's recordings of dogs walking around with a hand or a foot, like a chew toy. And they'd be left there and crows would come and peck out their eyes. And all of this was done publicly. Today this would be done in the parking lot of Wegmans. This would be done at the King of Prussia Mall. There, in the middle of everyone, the, the, the scum of the earth would come out and they would mock the person. They would come out and they would bring their drinks and they would laugh and they would mock and they would watch the show that was crucifixion. And this is how our Lord died. He was betrayed and abandoned. The scriptures tell us clearly that a crown of thorns was beaten upon his head. He was mocked. He was spit upon. He was flogged and ripped to pieces. He became so weak that he couldn't carry his own cross. Someone else had to carry it for him. He was stripped naked. And there on the cross... He was crying out, writhing in pain. He was cursed. He was disfigured. And he died. Who here wants to glory in that? I don't. Who wants to find their pleasure? Who wants to relish that? We don't believe in the cross. Because the act of crucifixion is horrifying. The second reason we don't want to believe in the cross is that it exalts weakness, poverty, and humility. 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 118, the idea that God of the universe became a man and then died that horrible death on the cross. Well, the philosophers say that's foolish. That's insane. That's disgusting. Are you saying that all the power in the universe became complete weakness and poverty and naked, shameful and spit upon and incontinent? And the people mocked him? That's what you worship? It was, uh, it was so mocked. We have this picture from about the 2nd century A.D. This is found in Rome near the Palatine Hill, another piece of graffiti. It depicts Jesus Christ crucified with the head of a donkey. And it says, a Christian named Aleximenos worships God. This is mockery. This is 2nd century mockery. This is them saying, can you believe how ridiculous Christianity is? They worship a God who died on a cross. Who wants to worship that? We don't believe in the cross of Christ because it exposes our eyes. Right after Jesus died on the cross, then he rose from the dead. And the very first Christian sermon preached The day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Peter stands up. He's standing before a crowd of of Jews and he says this, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. You did it. You killed Jesus. That's what Peter says. But God raised him from the dead, so you better watch out. Freeing him from the agony of death because it's impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Do you know what Peter just said? He just said the cross is your fault. And I know, I know, he's talking to Jews in Jerusalem at the time of Christ. But if you read the rest of the scriptures, you realize that they're equal opportunity offenders. It's not just the Jews who killed Jesus. It's anyone who sins. How many of you have sinned? That Jesus died for your sins means it's your fault. You killed him. You put him there. That if you want to see what God thinks of your sin, if you want to see how God feels about you in your natural sinful state, about what you do in secret, about your anger problem, about your depression, about how twisted and broken you are, if you want to see how God sees you, you just look at Jesus Christ, filleted, writhing in agony on the cross. And that's how God feels about your wicked heart. It's portrayed Isaiah chapter 53. Surely he took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrow. Yet we, were, we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us, that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you know what the apostle said this is about? Jesus' death is about your infirmities. It's about your sorrows. It's about your transgressions. It's about your iniquities. 
It's your punishment. That the cross of Christ exposes our hearts. The cross is what we deserve. The cross is offensive because it exposes who we really are. I don't want to believe in the cross because crucifixion is horrifying. I don't want to believe in the cross because because it exalts weakness and poverty and humility. And who wants to be weak and powerless and humble? I don't want to believe in the cross because it exposes the wickedness of my heart. And I don't want to believe in the cross because it devastates my sense of self-worth. In Galatians chapter 5 verse 11, the, the Apostle Paul is preaching to these Jews who what they want to do is they want to try and make their own way of righteousness. They want to appear righteous before God. So they're everyone, you need to be circumcised. You need to follow these rules. You need to believe in Jesus and then follow these rules if you really want to be a good person. And you know what the Apostle Paul says? Anyone who preaches a gospel other than the one I've given you, let him be condemned. Let him go to hell. It's damned. It's a damned lie. And then he goes on to say this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 11. Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, that is that you can be righteous before God, that you can make yourself good enough or smart enough, that God is going to love you just because of what you do. If I'm still preaching that, then why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. Do you pick this up? Do you know why the cross is offensive? Because it tells us nothing you do is good enough. Nothing you do is good enough. I, you know, I know. You say, well, how do you think you're going to, you know, you, you got to make some decisions about life at some point, right? We're all going to die. It's going to come. Don't like to talk about it, but we got to face that reality at some point. How are you going to face God? What's your answer? And most people say, you know, I really think I'm a pretty good person. You know, I, I do some nice things. And the cross tells us explicitly, you're damned. It's over. If you think you're good enough, there's no hope. The cross is offensive because it says all your righteousness, all your going to church, all the things that you've done to make yourself good are worthless. At the end of the day, you have to depend on Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. It's our only hope. But I want to feel good about myself. So I don't want to believe that. The last reason we don't want to believe in the cross is because at the end of the day, Jesus calls us to join him there. So Mark chapter 8, Jesus is with the disciples and they're traveling around this area called uh, Caesarea Philippi. And, and they're out there and they're having this conversation. He says, say, say who, do, who do people say that I am? And they're like, well, you know, some say that you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Some say you're Elijah or the prophet. Um, you know, th- there's all these different theories rowing around there, and Jesus stops everything and says, what about you? Who, who do you say that I am? And Peter, 
steps up and says, well, you're the Christ. We usually, we use this as the great confession. You're the Christ, the, the Son of God. And at that point, Jesus says, you got something here. You're ready for it. I'm going to reveal to you who I truly am. And he stops, and let me tell you what he says. He says, then he began to teach them that the Son of Man, that he himself must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. So he says, you got it. You know who I am. Now let me tell you my plan for saving the universe. Let me tell you how I'm going to solve all of your problems. How I'm going to fulfill all your hopes and dreams. How I'm going to be exactly what you're looking for in life. I'm going to die. A horrible death. And what did Peter do? He says, Peter took him aside and said, Jesus, you got to stop this. This is not working. Nobody wants to talk about crucifixion and death. Come on, Jesus. We're here to support you and, and to do something great here. What are you doing, Jesus? And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You do not have the things of God in mind, but the things of men. And then he calls in not just the, the disciples, but the whole crowd. And he says this to them. If anyone would come after me, if you want Jesus, if you want to follow Jesus, you must deny yourselves and take up your cross and follow me. Now, I want you to picture this. This is not to us who like, we have this proverbial idea, the cross is an ornament on our stage. The people who had seen crucifixion. They had seen condemned men walk through the streets carrying a cross, going to the edge of town where they would be mocked, they would be they would be crucified. And Jesus just said, If you want to follow me, you need to do that. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words and my cross, if anyone is ashamed of a God who is exalted in weakness and humility and death, then I will be ashamed of him. If you want to follow Jesus, you have to follow him to the cross. For the next three weeks, we're going to talk about a lot of actually happy things. We're going to talk about the benefits of the cross of Christ. That in the cross, you see the love of God. That in the cross, you experience the freedom of forgiveness. That in the cross, your shame is removed. That in the cross, we find the power of God to defeat the works of evil. That in the cross, there is hope and there is joy and there is life. But if you're not first offended and you do not realize the cost of the cross, then you can never appreciate the benefits of the cross. There are many many reasons that we do not want to believe in the cross of Christ. But anyone who wants to save his life must lose it. 
the only reason you would possibly want to follow Jesus to the cross is because it's the only way. And I'm afraid that it is. Pray with me. Father, I know that this is a a weighty subject. I know this is a gory subject. God, but I I know that this is, is, uh, is hope, that in it is life, that through the cross doesn't just come death, but comes life, Lord, that through the cross doesn't just come the offensive parts, Lord, but through that we find freedom, that we don't have to live for ourselves, that we can die to who we are, We can die to this world. We can die to our selfishness. That we can die to Satan and his works. And that we can live to Christ. Father God, I I pray that in these weeks as we lead up to Easter, that you would set our hearts and our minds. That we could see what the Apostle Paul sees in the cross of Christ. That we could boast in it. That we could relish it. That we could delight in it. Because through it, we find you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.